Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the Mind Yourself podcast. It's myself, Owen and Christy again, uh, continuing our ever-growing conversation and the whole area of stress. Um, so, I mean, this week we've kind of talked a little bit about um, some of the kind of physical um, implications of stress in our life, how it might affect child development and pregnancy. An interesting conversation last time was around um, sexual health and how that's impacted by stress. But today we want to start bringing it back to kind of what MOTUS is all about, which is mental health. And so to start off, Christy, I think just to kick off the conversation, um, I think it'd be great just to kind of explain what is the relationship and how are stress and mental health tied together? Yeah, um, so as I mentioned on the very first podcast uh, we did on stress, um, the most important thing about stress is it basically validates mental health um, in relation to like I have friends who are doctors or in the in medical uh, research and, you know, they often argue, oh, like, like it's not good research if you're measuring how somebody thinks or how somebody feels when it's self-report, when they're writing it down themselves. And so, like, the problem being with that is because it depends on what age they are, maybe, or where they are, or if they're in a good mood that day, that affects how they think or how they feel in that moment. And so it mm. lessens the research. Um, it's subjective. Um, but the thing with stress is it's completely observable and it's objective. So if you can actually track somebody's stress to measure um, how they're feeling or um, on a given day, uh, regardless of the subjectivity of it. And that's why it's so useful. And um, I suppose a good place to start is depression. Um, because when you speak about depression, you know, most people associate it with the symptoms of like psychomotor retardation, whereby they have like no energy to do anything. They There is a lack of movement. And then also mm -hmm. anhedonia, which is a lack of pleasure. So they have no interest in doing anything. And so while their body... And while they seem to be doing absolutely nothing, what's happening on a stress level is in the majority of time, uh, with the majority of depression cases, their stress levels are skyrocketing. So while they're doing nothing that you can see internally, they're going through a complete mental battle and that can actually be seen through stress responses. So they have increases in glucocorticoids and epinephrine and norepinephrine. And as a result, we know that depression is a real illness then uh, because we can actually okay. see it through stress. Does that make sense? And Yeah. So so and, and this comes back to what you mentioned before. The reason stress is like quite an interesting topic for in psychology is because it's easily measured through hormone imbalances or spikes in certain hormones in the brain or in the body. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So is, is it like in the depression case, would it be commonly used as an assessment tool when you're looking at? psychological illnesses yeah so you'd you'd kind of use um you'd use both for depression for example like you take the symptoms into account like the subjective symptoms like how they're feeling how they're thinking and then if you can combine that then with like glucocorticoid levels for example that's a good indication of depression um okay but i i will note and this is where it gets complicated and this is why there's been so much money spent on depression but it still hasn't been explained there are certain cases where somebody can have depression, but their stress level hasn't elevated. In fact, it's actually lower than average. That's known as an atypical depression. Um, and this is normally associated with that psychomotor retardation I was talking about. 
Um, but in most cases, I should note that it is an increase of glucocorticoids with depression. Okay. Okay. And so just like out of interest then, so basically what you're saying is someone who's depressed on the face of it, as we might say, looks down, is not, you know, maybe engaging, looks kind of distant and, you know, not kind of, not really engaging or showing any kind of like enthusiasm for things, but on the inside, their brain and their stress levels and hormones are going like mad. So it's actually a completely mirrored, uh, like opposite image based on what they show externally and how what's going on internally yeah exactly um and there's more there's actually more links as well like for example we've already talked about how like chronic stress will lead to suppressed immune system and osteoporosis for example cardiovascular disease and um also memory loss and Mm -hmm. all of these um effects have been found if for people who have been chronically depressed as well so people who okay. have been depressed for a long period of time, they show suppressed immune system, they're more likely to get sick. Uh, their mm-hmm. bone health is worse, so they're increased risk of uh, osteoporosis. They're also increased risk of having a heart attack, and they also suffer memory loss. So there's lots okay. of um, overlaps there between um, chronic stress and depression. That's not, again, I'm emphasizing, not saying that they're the, um, one causes the other, but there is definitely an association there. Okay, so... Basically, as you said, stress and depression are tied quite closely together and how actually that's impacting the brain when someone is depressed. So in that sense, would you say that then if you can reduce the stress, you can therefore reduce the depression? Would, would that make sense? Yes, but to um, but but to an extent. So um, this was a massive breakthrough for researchers at the time, and that's what they taught. They taught on a biological level, if you block the stress response biologically, um, because mm-hmm. we do have drugs to do that, then that would make people come out of depression. Um, but the problem with that is it does seem to improve depressive symptoms, but these drugs that do that. And actually, would you believe the main drug that does that, interestingly, is the abortion drug um, that blocks the glucocorticoid receptors in the brain. So that's RU486 is what it's called. Um, But the problem is these drugs have side effects um, and they can be quite dangerous if you continuously use them for a long period of time. And that's why while it might uh, be a short term solution, it's not great long term. Um, Although there is aspects of this that are promising like there is a natural hormone um and people probably have heard of it called dhea um and it's been found to have the same effects it blocks the glucocorticoid receptors uh, in the brain uh, meaning that it basically minimizes the impact of the stress response um i think you can actually take these dhea supplements but um they're not found in any food but again they're not a full solution, but I think they can help. Um, so there has been progress made in this, but again, it's not only stress, so it's not the only answer to um, to solving the puzzle that is depression. So, and I mean, is that still, that's still being a studied practice, whether or not medication that reduces stress will in turn reduce depression? Yeah, like the, the, the biggest it's not, problem... It's not, like, it's not a proven medical treatment yet or, or anything. Mm, like okay. I'm I'm sure down the line we're going to have many podcasts like I'd say we could do a full team on depression itself um like I'll just mention this very briefly like the biggest problem with antidepressants um 
there's three main um, neurotransmitters that have been looked at in relation to depression, and that's serotonin, uh, dop- dopamine, and neuropinephrine. And um, what these antidepressants do, essentially, like SSRIs, for example, um, they actually attack all the receptors of these um, of these different neurotransmitters. And in some people, they'll find effects, and in other people, they won't. And the big issue with these antidepressants is, yes, they sometimes work, but the problem is researchers still don't know why they're working. And that's a bit concerning in relation mm, to... Okay, that is concerning. Um, yeah, and but obviously the, the pharmaceutical companies, like I'm not going into conspiracy theory land here, but like big pharma and stuff like that, they're still going to sell it even though they don't exactly know what's causing the effect. Um, mm. And there are side effects to these drugs, which is why if antidepressants can be avoided, I really say they do. But at the same time, that goes without saying antidepressants have saved lives, particularly quality of life for lots of people as well. So it's not all bad. Um, it's just the science isn't perfect yet. Yeah. And like, uh, like, I'm not the biggest fan of big pharma. Like, like you, you would. These stories are true where at these medical conferences, like psychiatrists, clinical psychologists who can um, administer drugs are essentially paid off their boss uh, dinners and accommodation and holidays to sell their drug, even though their drug might not work or it's just okay. the exact same as an older drug for a higher price. Um, like that does exist. But I think with big pharma, sometimes people forget is um, these pharmaceutical companies are putting millions uh, possibly even billions into these drugs like so it's not like they're just trying to make money um they're they are investing in trying to improve science for example and i think um nine times out of ten they get a bad name for it but there, there's pros and cons basically <laughs> okay okay we'll leave that for another conversation because i think it could yes. be a right rabbit hole um, yeah. so i mean we've talked a little bit about depression i think it'd be interesting to see what other kind of mental illnesses or mental health conditions are also tied a little bit to stress yeah um so i suppose obviously the next one that goes alongside depression is always anxiety Mm -hmm. um so primarily a stress response involves um three main hormones and that and they are uh glucocorticoids uh epinephrine and neuropinephrine Again, just reminding people, I mentioned it before, epinephrine and norepinephrine are adrenaline and non-adrenaline. They're just basically the same things, but um, they're different names used sometimes. And while glucocorticoids are more associated with depression because they're more long-term release over time, epinephrine and norepinephrine are released immediately. And these are the ones that are more associated with anxiety. Um, so the difference between epinephrine and norepinephrine is norepinephrine is in the brain while epinephrine is in the body. And so before I explain the relationship with stress and anxiety, I think it's important for that people know exactly, uh, how anxiety stems and how it works in the brain. So anxiety can be innate whereby it's more genetic or it can be learned. So people can learn to become anxious about something like, for example, a phobia or, um, or like PTSD after a um a traumatic incident. Um oh, that, so, like PTSD would be included in the learned anxiety. Yeah. So I I could butcher this now, this is going back to my undergrad education. So anxiety, like the four main types are um generalized anxiety disorder, uh, agoraphobia, which is fear of like public places, uh there's social anxiety, there's PTSD, and then there's uh phobias. 
Okay. I think I have all of them. But um, yeah, so basically emotional memories, while the main memory system of the brain is the hippocampus, that's the brain area that's uh, yeah. where we basically can recall like facts or learning how to ride a bike. Yeah. Um, but emotional memories are stored, stored in the amygdala. Um, and so what that means is that emotional memories can happen really, really quickly. So we've talked about the amygdala and like the emotional brain. Um, so is that, so just to, when you say emotional memories, this is things like when you're a kid and you put your hand on a hot surface and you realize that that's your hand yes. pulls away without you thinking about it. And then as you get older, you might done, done it once when you're a kid and then you realize it's hot, but like it's because your memory remembers the brain, but it's not like you're actively thinking is that hot? It's a, an emotional reaction because of the temperature or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and that's why, um, like our our amygdala is one of the first brain areas to receive the information. So, um, so sometimes our amygdala, well, always actually, our amygdala gets sensory information before the cortex. Um, always, and so where stress then comes into this is the amygdala is immensely sensitive to glucocorticoid signals. So when we're releasing the stress response, our amygdala is extremely active and Mm -hmm. the amygdala communicates using the neurotransmitter uh, CRH, which if you remember, I mentioned before, is part of the stress response. And so what this allows then is people with anxiety, it allows them to essentially feed the anxiety off themselves. So the anxiety continues and continues. And that is what can then lead to the mental illness of anxiety. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And um now we haven't talked about this um but I'm just going to notice here a big big danger of constantly having this chronic stress as well is um memory loss. So there's been lots of links between chronic stress and dementia because what chronic stress seems to do rat studies have shown this is it kills brain cells in the hippocampus uh which is our memory store. And, um, and what this I is find not re- your emotional memories. This is your general memory store. Yes. Remembering experiences. Okay. Exactly. But th- where this ties in with anxiety is because there seems to be this phenomenon ha- happening. And I think this is really interesting. What chronic stress also does is it actually increases the connect- uh, connectivity between the amygdala's brain cells. So it basically makes the amygdala more active and it makes the hippocampus less active, essentially. And uh, really intelligent research then by Joseph Ledoux. Uh, he's basically like the god of neuroscience. Uh, <laughs> he's based in New York University. He basically explained why if somebody as a child experienced a really, really traumatic incident, they might have successfully repressed it and then when they're faced with the um, with the environment that caused that traumatic incident, like, for example, maybe a man touches them from behind if they were sexually abused as a child. What happens in the brain there is the amygdala remembers it straight away, that emotional memory. But you might not know why, because your hippocampus has lost those neurons. So they've lost those memories but the amygdala remembers it. And so you might respond with an extreme um, anxiety attack or a panic attack, for example, but you don't know why. Um, and that's because you've successfully repressed it. And that can be a leading symptom wow. to like PTSD. Yeah. And I think it's really cool that basically science and neuroscience has explained that. 
Um, That's very interesting. So basically, and uh, you do see that where some people sometimes, uh, uh, like not that I know it personally, but you hear of these things where people seem to have these irrational fears or anxiety attacks or panic attacks in certain situations, but they can't really remember what it is. And so it's basically their brain protecting them almost because it's removed that experience, that memory of the actual experience itself from their brain but it's kept the emotional reaction to protect themselves from experiencing it again. That's quite a weird one. Yeah, and then um, from this perspective, then this is why maybe like talking about a traumatic incident with a therapist can help because what you're doing is you're redeveloping those um, neurons in the hippocampus. So you're Mm -hmm. making yourself remember basically what happened going through it because if you're able to recall the memory then yes, your amygdala is going to react when you're in that situation, but your hippocampus will also remember, okay, the reason why this is happening is because of that incident that happened when I was a child. And then being able to basically negotiate from the two then allows your frontal cortex to come in and rationalize the situation and be better able so to So it allows you it. to then kind of, in a scenario that might feel like something that impacted you as a child, it allows you to more appropriately respond and almost deal with that experience and move on from that experience rather than having it having that emotional reaction have a debilitating effect on how you actually operate in society because you know you don't know actually how to deal with that memory because you you've lost it is that is that right yeah exactly okay Um, okay interesting and i mean so that's that's actually quite interesting because that was actually what i was going to ask you next because we talked about how chronic stress impacts someone from a mental health perspective like in the moment but i was quite interested to see how throughout development because the conversation we had previously was how chronic stress impacts child development and pregnancy and that kind of thing and i was very curious to see how chronic stress in early life or during life on a more prolonged level impacts your mental health because obviously when it comes to a depression it could be that it's like an acute scenario where you're dealing with chronic stress at a moment in time and that then causes you to develop, say, a depressive state. But then when it comes to maybe a more prolonged experience, and I think that quite nicely describes it, where a panic attack that you still experience later in life was caused from stress that you experienced as a child. Yeah, um, of course, that's not always the case. Um, yeah. But generally, when somebody experiences something traumatic as a child, their stress system is going to be hyperactive, essentially, that any situation that is any bit stressful, their body's response will be hyperactive, like it'll be far more than um, somebody else who hasn't experienced trauma, for example. And this is where the innate stuff comes in as well. Like some people might have the genes to have an overactive stress response. Okay. And I mean, then, so... So we've talked a little bit about depression. We've talked about anxiety. I mean, is there any studies just out of my own personal curiosity regarding how stress in early life, besides that example you've given, leads to mental health issues in, you know, young people and then as they become adults? Is is, is there much study around that as regards chronic stress impacts that later in life? Yeah, um, like in... All psychology undergraduates, the first, um, like it's psychology 101, one of the first things that I learn is the biopsychosocial model. Um, this is the idea that basically uh, when you are presented with a mental health issue or a mental illness, you need to look at biological factors, psychological factors and social factors. And 
for me personally anyway i think the most reliable biological factor as i mentioned at the start of this podcast is um is the stress response like if they have an overactive stress response i think that's going to be a good indication that they um are likely to have a mental health issue but if, again it's not the only thing the psychological then looks at the emotion regulation for example and then social factors are looking at basically the people around them and um how society views um whatever they're struggling with for example yeah, because that was actually what I was going to come to next. And I mean, and, and it's pretty clear, I mean, at this point, what you've said from you from a personal level and from your you know background in researching this kind of space, how important your opinion and how important stress is for psychological and mental health research and how how an important part that plays in the progress we make to somewhat understand how mental illnesses are formed and how we can better treat them mm. the the the, on, the only problem though is like it's so like this stuff is very very difficult to measure um not so much the like stress response like cortisol um and like glucocorticoids like that can be quite well understood um, but it's when you get to the brain, uh, the neurotransmitters like the serotonin, the dopamine, the norepinephrine, um, it just gets so complicated because you're not, these aren't just like, obviously these are like chemicals in the brain, but they can like lock on to so many different receptors, for example, um, and different, and there's millions of neurons and there's uh, thousands of synapses and there's lots of different types of receptors like there's not just one type of receptor that a dope dopamine substance can click on to like there's there's loads like and that's where it gets really really complicated and i find it i find it quite funny like there will be researchers um like i've had professors that have spent their whole life studying one receptor and how maybe like a neurotransmitter locks onto that receptor and they're like certain this is the receptor that explains depression or anxiety, mm. but then they're wrong. <laughs> and it's just like they've spent their <laughs> whole life. Yeah. And it's so sad. And like they speak so passionately about it and then they just kind of end the lecture with, oh, oh yeah, but I'm wrong. Um, <sighs> it, it appears that that's not the case. Um, and so this is why like the biological, it's really, really exciting, as I mentioned, because it's objective. But particularly when you're going into neurobiology, it's just so complicated that, um, yes, we're making massive progress, but it's going to take time before we can uh, basically 100 percent apply it to a diagnosis. Yeah. But I mean, I suppose. As acknowledging that, that, you know, there's still a huge amount of complexity because when we're talking about the brain, we're talking about millions and billions of receptors and activities that can go on at any moment. So it's impossible to kind of at this point plot a trend that would be tied to directly to depression or some sort of mental illness. But would you say certainly with stress be offering an objective and biological and visual um, response in the body? that is tied to mental illness, would you say it's one of the better and potentially most successful routes that we could take to understand mental health a little bit better? Um, I don't know. This is just me uneducated (laughs) thinking about Um, it. Like... You see, see the, the the other big issue as well that I didn't mention with biology, like, for example, you mentioned there objectively and visually, like visually being able to look at how um, how the body responds to stress. Um, like, for example, at the moment now I'm researching cortisol and 
the problem with cortisol, which is a type of glucocorticoid, um, the problem with it is you don't know what's good and what's bad. <laughs> Do okay. you get me? Like yeah. you look at this graph of basically it going up and down, but we don't actually know like, oh, this is a good thing or so this where's is a bad too, thing. So where's too much and where's too little and, you know, yeah. what's the limit? Um, But like in answering your question, like, yes, I, I do think it's going to take time, but the biology is good. But the biology then closely interacts with the psychology or the psychological factors like mm. a stress. OK, so our body does react biologically. But stress needs coping. So we need some form of coping basically to respond to the stress. Um, and like like I was talking about with the like you can't deny the psychological aspect. Like, for example, it's the psychological aspect that influences um, our pain threshold. So when we're stressed, we are less likely to be in pain. Um, like, for example, if a, if a soldier gets shot in war, but they need to save somebody in the meantime, they're not going to feel that pain as much. And the reason why that has a role to play is because of how they're thinking in that moment. So our thoughts, our psychology influences our biology. So you can't just look at one independently. You need to basically look at how they interact. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's not only biological, but it's the environment. It's the scenario. There's a lot of different factors that are combined to come to whatever conclusion that they're, that what mental state they're in. Yeah. And then the social then comes in because yeah. like, for example, um, if you're brought up a certain way, like you basically learn the thinking patterns of your mother and father, whether you like it or not. Mm. And so like that social aspect of uh, good or bad parenting then influences the psychology, which then influences the biology. And like it's not like unilateral where it just goes one way, like they all interact with each other. And probably and, there's each person kind of probably takes on a certain proportion of their parents' traits or ways of thinking. It's not linear for every single person to take exactly this amount of their thinking in every case. So you're talking every single individual's case has so many different factors that it's impossible. Well, not maybe it's not impossible. Hopefully it's not impossible. But at this point, it's still too difficult to come to a consistent, conclusive proof as to how to assess mental health in every single person. Yeah. And then and then like there's types of biology and there's types of psychological factors. Like, for example, with biology, it's not just about the stress response. Like there's also so many genes um, that basically might influence how somebody thinks and how somebody behaves and how somebody mm. reacts to a situation. Um, the only thing that <laughs> to, to end this endless conversation, the, o- the only thing I think the only way to answer that question is the only thing that's definite is it's complicated yeah okay that's okay yeah yeah so i don't think between yourself and myself debating this over zoom is not going to figure the answer out (laughs) no unfortunately okay so then avoiding trying to come to the conclusion as the answer to mental illness then over this to try and simplify it back down and bring it back to stress at least one thing we can agree on is that stress does play a key factor into mental illness and mental health and so in that sense without going into too much of the kind of specific scenario per person, but in general, from a societal perspective, then I'd be right in saying that if we look at stress management on a societal level, we can potentially look at addressing mental illness on a societal level. Would I be right in saying? Yes. Um, right. The biggest, the biggest factor, um, like the best predictor of, well, this research has changed over the last few years, but w- one of the best indicators of mental I- or of stress, sorry, um, of 
you're more basically what the research shows is you're more likely to have stress if you're poor. So poverty is a huge, huge issue in relation to like, for example, when people constantly have to worry about where their next paycheck's coming from or where they're going to get money, um, that's highly stressful. And um, poor probably um, has different levels depending on your situation. Like I'm sure because like what's poor? Is there is there a number that it says once you're above this figure, you're not considered yeah. poor? Exactly. Um, And then, but like other factors as well that you wouldn't even think of, like, for example, a big factor seems to be influencing children and adolescents is uh, time asleep. Um, If children basically have to get up really, really early uh, to go to school, um, they're losing hours of sleep, for example. And as a result, they're not able to attain as much. They're not able to learn um, to take in as much information. Um, and so they're kind of stuck in this rut of this ongoing and lack of sleep also leads to a higher stress response uh, as an adult. I'm sure um, I'm sure just I'm sure kids around the world would be delighted to hear that psychology says they should start school a couple of hours later in the morning. Oh, 100 w- percent. Um, like I know we'll talk about sleep. Um, we've talked about this with Bridge. Um, like the adolescent circadian rhythm shifts. Um shifts in early adolescence so from about 10 to 15 so um research has actually shown that when when teenagers are allowed to sleep in they perform better academically um but they Tell don't that to do the parents this. who give out about their kids not getting out of bed mm. but um but they they don't do it like when children are poor like they don't get this opportunity on top of that they're probably fed less they have less knowledge they have worse education like and these are all um situations that create a higher stress response mm-hmm. um and so on a societal level the best way you can target um reducing stress because as we've discussed over the past few podcasts it's absolutely detrimental uh, if you have chronic stress. It it impacts yeah. so many things. Like, um, and so the way you can reduce that is by reducing the poverty gap. Um, and people are aware of this. Like, this is what governments have been trying to do for a long time. Um, like, I don't think if you're left or right, you would argue that you don't want poverty abolished. Like, like poverty is a big, yeah. big issue. But I mean. Um, what like this is where i'm interested in so what's poverty is it a monetary value is it access to certain things so do you know the way you have some societies in europe i think in particular that will have very good health care for all very good education for all they might necessarily still be a disparity from a monetary level there's definitely i'm sure wealthy financially wealthy people and financially poorer people but people have access to a lot more things so does that mean they're not poor in a from a you know they maybe they don't feel poor i don't know so um with with healthcare um this is the best example to give um the original thought and this makes sense like um there was research done for example depending on level of income um so answering your question about um like what is poor um the way they've done the research is there's gradients basically um there's like it's not just under a certain income there's different gradients of income and um like before the assumption was essentially people on the lowest and the research has shown this when their gradient is low when people are living in poor areas the a and e like the ambulance service are less likely to um 
try and protect or try to uh, resuscitate somebody who's dying if they're poor as opposed to if they're rich. Like that, like that has been proven. Like and like that, and is th- that like that's just only... based on like why is that? Is that based on the it's, people see, are the, less the, inclined the, to want to help them, or what? what what's going it's, on? There? It, it it's an unconscious bias. Like it's not anything on purpose. Like it's it's complicated. Basically, like this is how we've grown up that the poor are wow. less important than the rich. But so obviously the solution then is universal healthcare. Like for example, the NHS yeah. in the UK. But the research actually shows it doesn't actually make a difference. Even if, um, even if there is free healthcare provided, the poor are still less likely to uh, avail of it. Um, and the Why? research has consistently shown that they don't know. Um, and the explanation, well, one possible explanation, um, is that it's not so much about being poor that is the issue. It's about feeling poor. And this then ties in with what we were just talking about, about the, the massive role that the psychology has to play with, play on. That it's not just object... Because people don't live objectively looking at the situation. Like, people don't say, like, I am poor. But it's... The issue is that when they compare themselves to people who are well off, when they're in cities, for example, big cities where they are seeing lots and lots of wealth... It's that comparison, it's that feeling poor that has been a better indicator in some cases than actually being poor. So of like mental it, illness is of stress. Of stress, sorry, not mental illness, stress, sorry. Um, so so how then but the, the the thing is, there's no way that you're ever going to be able to make a purely equal world because there'll always be people who will you know, work a bit harder or do things a little bit differently or get lucky. And so there will always be some sort of disparity. So if you can't address the actual being poor, how do you actually address the feeling poor? So um, it's not so much that like, like, so that's the argument of the left, for example, like this idea of universal basic income, that if everybody um has some sort of, basic income basically that it reduces the gap between the rich and the poor and people stop feeling as poor because what causes feeling poor is income inequality it's like uh, poor people comparing themselves to rich people so um and the problem today as well i should mention is that while before it would have just been the people around you in your community now it's global because people go on facebook they go on instagram and they see influencers driving uh ferraris and living their high life they're constantly comparing themselves and if somebody does have low income then that makes them feel worse so that's the factor of social media coming into it and this like whole level of globalization that it's no longer just local communities now it's it's everything is global um but basically, like, I'm not promoting and I don't think it would work like this idea of universal income if you give because there's no motivation there then like that's not going. People will always want more. So even if you give me universal basic income, they're still going to feel poor compared but to the richest. When you say universal basic income, you just mean that people living below a certain means get basically brought up to a certain level. It's not that everyone gets paid the same. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So there is That's still. What I mean by in, that. in that scenario, there still is going to be richer, and then everyone on the universal basic income level. So there will still be the kind of a I'm seeing people earning more than me. I am earning more than I did because actually, do you know what's so funny? This, this, and then I'll come go on. But it was I think this was me, my dad mentioned something that he read somewhere that 
they did this study, or maybe you mentioned it as well. I think I've heard it twice, but it was around the idea that people prefer to see someone earning more than them earn less and closer to them than have the themselves increase their wealth. So they'd rather be closer to the person at the top than be any richer than they currently are. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's what stresses yeah. them out. And which is madness because it actually is people it's not it's not really as you said about the 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 whole number. It's not about the what am I being paid and I'd rather be paid more. It's entirely about the how am I different to everyone else? It's entirely the keeping mm. up with the Joneses or looking at your neighbor. So how that has to be a psychological thing because that's not something you can address with a universal basic income. Yeah, um, like like Jeff Bezos, for example, is is hated like by, by a majority. Like anytime you look mm. at the comment section, anytime he's mentioned, like that's why I think the news outlets like to mention him so much. All the comments are just like he's not giving enough money or something. Like it's it's I'd say a big role to play in it is envy. Um. But so the solution um, is it's not so much money that basically solves the solution of giving people more money. But what actually seems to be more appropriate or explain more of it is this idea of social capital. So it's not so much of how much money you have, but it's more along the lines of what's around you. So like is my neighborhood or is my estate safe? Um, do I get on well with my community? Can my children go to the local school and get a good education? And so um, I'm simplistically putting this, but rather than this idea of universal income, what I seem to be, what seems to be more effective is as opposed to giving people individuals money, it's just putting more money into society in relation to like public transport, in relation to education, um, into sports facilities, surrounding people, uh, particularly in those poorer neighborhoods with nicer things to be around. That is what reduces the crime levels, the research shows, and what seems to give people a better sense of meaning, a better sense of living, and a better quality of life. Um, so like it's obviously this is simplistic like and um but if the governments can start doing this more i think that's moving more towards reducing this um this stress level for the poor as opposed to just giving the money yeah and um, what's ironic is and not ironic but it's what's an interesting comparison just came into my head when you started listing out some of those things so by investing in better facilities for people to allow them to enjoy life a little bit more. When you started talking about that, the first thing that came into my head when it was talk about reducing stress, but it, it, I went straight to the kind of the, the five ways of well-being that we talk on a lot about and how better facilities like good education or access to decent education gives children a better chance at learning about the world and being more knowledgeable, which is obviously one. The opportunity to have better facilities might make people a little bit more aware of being grateful for the things they have um, having better facilities to exercise, parks, things like that. All those little things are already key to help kind of manage your mental health and probably in turn reduce stress. So it's actually funny how it's not so much, as you said, handing the money to them. And I think that's a, a lot of that's probably been looked at across the world that actually just handing money to people who are, you know, poor and then in turn stressed doesn't actually solve the problem. That also explains the universal healthcare research um, in that it's not the problem that it's free, um, that 
the poor are less likely to use it. The problem is they're not educated on what is good health or when they need to go to the doctor, for example. Like, I will note that, for example, like, when you compare the UK and the US, they're, they're quite similar, even though one has universal health care and the other one doesn't. But when you, again, compare the Scandinavian countries, who are the best at everything, to the UK and the US, they're not massively better, but they are still better. And okay. the difference there is that, yes, they have universal health care. Yes, they have free education. But also on top of that, their gap uh, between the richest and the poorest is lower. Um, so there's less of that income inequality. There, of course, still is poverty. There's poverty everywhere. But if you visit, for example, like Oslo or Stockholm, you're going to see far less homeless people compared to if you go to New York or London. Mm. Um, and you see, that seems to be the difference then. And like there's so many roll on effects then or knock on effects whereby like you have somebody who is homeless, they're highly stressed, they're more likely then to commit crimes, for example, and if um, just to make a living, essentially, yeah. to survive. And if you're more likely to make crime, that idea of your social capital then goes down in New York. Mm. So not everybody then enjoys living it. And then even the rich have stress as a result because their social capital goes down. So this isn't only beneficial to the poor or those in poverty. It's beneficial to people who are more well off as well. Because yeah. if you can basically reduce the gap between the rich and the poor, you basically improve social capital for everyone. And if you can improve social capital for everybody, that's only good thing for the rich and for the poor. And that's how I think governments should look at it. And therefore, no matter who you are, no matter what your socioeconomic situation is, society is a better place to be in. So therefore, stress levels are reduced. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like that's then on the that's on the societal level um, to manage your stress. But obviously on an individual level, which is what we're going to talk about in the final um, in the final podcast is um, you can do stuff to basically individually manage your stress yeah. as well. Yeah. So that's what I was about to say. So I think I mean, what's interesting is we covered that. We showed how mental health and both some of the kind of major mental illnesses that are kind of well known the hot topics your depression your anxiety how they're tied so much to stress um i think it's interesting to see that although stress isn't the answer to all mental health issues and will never be the only thing that we address there's so many other things and how complex it is but looking at how societal stress and in this case tied so much to poverty and addressing that in some capacity can go a long way to reducing stress in individuals. And I think that's a good way to start. Now, as you said, in our next episode, um, in a couple of weeks, what we'll do is we'll talk specifically around um, stress and dealing with it at the individual level, how each individual person can actually address that. And I think that's a more kind of in-depth situa area that will be more beneficial to the listener specifically because they can actually take some of those tips you know, personally and try and put them into their own lives. So um, I don't know, is there anything you want to add there, Christy? Or do you think that kind of covers everything regards mental health and stress? Um, Just on the topic, it's not actually related to either, but I also do think it's worth noting um, the biggest indicator as well of a lack of brain development is also poverty. Um, So it's not just stress, like us talking about biological, psychological and social factors. Like the biological factors are impacted, but so are the psychological and the neurobiological. So again, it's reducing this poverty should be one of the main concerns. Um, and I know obviously we're we're uh, blowing our own trumpets, but the way you do overcome that is by investing in education. I really do believe. Um, 
but opinion, not fact. Yes, but a but a good way to a good way to end, I think. So, as always, guys, um, if you liked what you heard, if you liked what you listened to, if you liked the topics, we're kind of doing this kind of stress conversation. We have some really exciting guests all through the season, anyway. So please share with your friends, like it, and follow us on our social media. There's always really good information to take on and help address your own mental health. But please share with your friends if you think it's relevant and you think it's something that they would enjoy. As always, we will put any of those links to some of that research and some of those studies into the show notes so that you can have a look if you want to do further research yourselves. And as always, mind yourselves.